Well, good morning. This uh, past weekend was an incredible weekend here at the Summit Church. Uh, Easter weekend, we had 12 services with almost 4,500 people in all those services. Uh, what I was most excited about was the many of you that brought somebody up to me um, that you had brought with you. In some cases, uh, two to three rows uh, of people. When it was all said and done, we had a uh, 160 people indicate to us that they had received Christ last weekend. We are, uh, we are in a series called Unexpected, which is the word that describes what it was like when people encountered Jesus. The idea is that when we approach the topic of God, we all have expectations, ideas about what he is supposed to be like, how he is supposed to act. But when people in the Bible actually met Jesus, he was rarely like what they expected. He had this habit of not doing what everybody thought that he should do. He shocked the non-religious and he scandalized the religious and he was so unexpected that he managed to get himself crucified for that very reason. He left many of the people that he encountered in a kind of dilemma. And that dilemma was that they could either hold on to their ideas about what God was like and deny Jesus, or they could accept Jesus for who he is or was and then change their ideas about God. The reason I bring that up is because you and I might find ourselves in the same exact position. What if the Jesus that you encounter in the Bible does not behave like you think he is supposed to behave, right? Are you going to hold on to what you believe about God and deny Jesus or try to redefine Jesus or God? Or are you going to accept Jesus for who he is and redefine how you see God? Does that make, does that, make that clear? Let me say that again. So you might be in the same dilemma that many people in the Bible found themselves in. Now that is, Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, so you've got a choice. And that is, you either accept Jesus for who he is and change your ideas about God, or you reconfigure Jesus to be what you want him to be. There's an old uh, Greek myth that I think about a lot when we talk about this. It's um, of a guy named Procustius, who in this Greek myth, Procustius, um, this sounds a little strange, but he, he made two things. He made a, a monster, and he made a bed for the monster to lie on. So when he got done... <laughs> Um, with the monster in the bed, alas, the monster was too long for the bed. So in this story, Procustius takes off a hacksaw and he cuts off the monster at the knees so that the monster can fit the bed. And the moral of the story is, no, Procustius, don't shorten your monster, lengthen your bed, right? Because if it doesn't fit, instead of you know cutting something off of this monster, you got to lengthen the bed that he has to lie on. And, and, and the reason I bring that up is because when you approach Jesus, sometimes he's much larger and different than what you thought he should be. And you've got to make a choice of whether or not you're going to cut off certain dimensions of what he said about himself and reconfigure him the way you would like him to be. Or if you're going to say, hey, Jesus, you get to define yourself even if it's not what I expected. And I meet people all the time who are like, yeah, well, you know, my Jesus would never say this and my Jesus would, would never do that. And I always tell them, like, look, no offense, but you don't get your own personal Jesus. Right? There's one Jesus. It's just him. And so you've got to decide whether or not you're going to accept him on his terms and the way he says he is. Okay? Does that make sense? Today, I want to talk about an unexpected verdict. Over the past few weeks, you've heard the stories of a lot of different people, some in the Bible and some right here in our church, who really met Jesus and what that was like. Today, 
what I want to do to begin with is I want to tell you a little bit about how I met Jesus. Uh, so to all of our campuses, if you have a Bible, you may want to pull it out because we'll get there in just a second. Um, but uh, Como Road and West Club and our newly formed campus right over in the bay on here at Briar Creek. Um, yeah, take your Bible out if you haven't. We'll get to it in a second. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were saved uh, the year that I was born. I've never really figured out if there's some kind of corollary to those two things, like, you know, God help us or what. But um, at any rate, I am grateful to have grown up in that kind of home. I learned about Jesus as a result at a very young age. And to the best of my knowledge, I put my trust in him to save me when I was five years old. However, uh, in my teenage years, I set out on somewhat of a, a different course. I was still in the church, still very active in the church, uh, mainly because my parents didn't really leave me any option. Um, and I don't really think I was ever brave enough to be a full-on rebel. I was much uh, too much of a type A firstborn people pleaser to actually pull on full, full force rebellion. But I began to subtly uh, chart my own course. I heard this week that the number one song played at uh, British funerals last year was Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, all right? So, uh, I mean, there's the British for you. But, but that was me, all right? That was me. I, I, I wasn't anti-God. I went regularly to church. I even tithed my money. Um, I was even, by the way, sword drill champion, which if you don't know what that is, I, I don't have time to unpack that for you, but it basically consists of holding up your Bible by the cover and then calling out a reference and seeing who can find it first. I was church nay, city champion, because all the churches got together and competed, and I was at the top of that food chain. I, um, I, uh, in fact, I was, I was captain of our Bible quiz team, which meant that one year we had to memorize basically the entire book of Genesis. I, I knew how to do the church thing. It's just that I didn't really want God telling me what to do. I thought some of his rules were pretty oppressive, and I was scared of where he would send me or who he would make me marry. And uh, basically, I was pretty sure, pretty confident that I would be happier if I was in charge. But I wasn't really worried, you see, about my relationship with God because I had prayed the sinner's prayer when I was five years old. I'd been baptized. I'd done the rituals. That was like my free pass to heaven. It was my my get out of hell free card. One night when I was, on Friday night when I was 15 years old, my Sunday school teacher uh, had all the boys in our Sunday school class over to his house to watch a football game or, or something. I, I don't remember much about the night. I don't remember anything about, about what happened that evening except that he did a 30-minute devotional out of Matthew 7, which is the passage that we're going to read together this morning. And let me just suffice it to say that when he read it, it scared, it scared me to death. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that a, a lot of Christians... A lot of Christians are going to say to him on on that last day, Lord, Lord, we're ready. We're expecting to go into heaven. Hey, we accepted you into our hearts. We did the ritual. You know, we prayed the prayer. We got baptized. We checked the box. We went to church. This passage says that Jesus is going to look back at them and say, depart from me. I never, I never knew you. And I knew that Friday evening in my Sunday school teacher's home, that that was, was me. I had done the ritual, but I couldn't honestly say that I knew Jesus. That started me on a journey that ended a year or so later with me surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, from this vantage point, I'm not really sure what happened at age five. Maybe, maybe I really did become a Christian then. I, I, I don't know. 
but I know that at 16, I really came to know Jesus. I want us to read this passage together. You see, there's a lot of familiar things that are in these verses. You know, it talks about the wise man building his house on the rock, the foolish man building his house on the sand. And honestly, we're so familiar with it that I think we tend to usually read this passage wrongly. You know, we hear foolish man, wise man, and we start singing the song we learned in Sunday. You know, the wise man built his house upon the rock. You know that song, or is that just me? Okay, so, um, uh, you know, we, we, but this is, listen, this is not supposed to be a sing-songy passage. It is a terrifying passage about some religious people, about the total collapse of some of their lives in eternity that is going to take them by a complete surprise. It is about a bunch of religious people hearing the most unexpected, surprising, terrifying verdict that anybody has ever heard or could ever imagine, imagine hearing. I actually want you this morning just to read it for yourself. So at all of our campuses, um, I'm going to put it up here on the screen. I want you to take a few minutes to, to read it. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever given in history, by giving you four shocking word pictures. And they come in sets of two, verses 13 and 14. He talks about two roads, a wide road and a narrow road. Verse 15 talks about two kinds of prophets, sheep and wolves dressed like sheep. Verse 16 through 18, he talks about two different trees, one with bad fruit and another with with good fruit. Verses 24 through 27, he talks about two houses, one built on the sand and, and one built on a rock. All showing you, in all four word pictures, the same thing. And that is the difference between false and true Christians. It is a warning. And that warning is that there are a lot of people who look like they are on the right path. They look religious on the outside. But they are going to hear the most terrifying, unexpected verdict at the end of their lives when Jesus looks at them and says, Depart from me. I never knew you. And I think people usually read this passage wrongly. They hear Jesus' illustration of the two roads, for example, and they assume that that the people on the wide road are all the atheists and the partiers and, and all the Christians are the ones on the narrow road. But I don't really think that that's right for a couple of reasons. For one, it doesn't fit the context. This entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has directed to religious people. So the idea at the end of this sermon that in this conclusion to it, he's going to take a hard left turn and start addressing an entirely different audience doesn't make sense. Secondly, all the pairs that Jesus puts together are eerily similar. For example, both sets of people are on a road who they believe is headed toward heaven. Verse 15, both the sheep and the wolves look like sheep. In other words, you know, Jesus is not saying that there's a group of people out there that look and act like wolves. He's not talking about people who hiss at the name of Jesus or, you know, have their eyes roll back in their head and during worship and they silently pray to Lord Voldemort. He, he's not talking about them. Hey, it's inwardly, not outwardly, that these people are ravenous wolves. You can't tell it by looking at them or watching them. Verse 22, the people that Jesus turns away on Judgment Day call him Lord. And they talk about their ministries. Verse 24, both houses look exactly the same on the outside. It's only the foundation that's different. When you get into it, if you know what you're looking for, you you can't tell it by looking at it. It's something below the surface, something you can't see. 
So you're not supposed to read this and think, oh, the wide road. That's all the people who got up this morning um, and went to Duke Gardens instead of coming to church. They're doing the easy thing. But us in here, we all cared enough about God to get out of bed and come to church. We're narrow road people. No. Both the wide and the narrow roads run right through this church, according to Jesus. Or say you go down to Daytona Beach on spring break. And there you see one group of college students getting plastered every night. And another group there on the mission trip. And so you look at, you know, you're like, oh, the partiers. Wide road. Wide road. But you look at these students who gave up their spring break to be on mission trip. Narrow road. Those are narrow road people. No. The wide and narrow road in Jesus' telling go within the ranks of all those who went on the mission trip. There is a wide easy religious road, Jesus says, that leads to hell. And it consists of praying a prayer, going through some rituals, you know, checking a box, getting confirmed, right? Going through certain rosaries that you have to say, right? Every tradition does it differently. But then you don't have to really take the lordship of Christ seriously. You get a free pass to heaven. I'm not trying to frighten you this morning, but it's many It's many of you that are in here who think you're on the narrow road because you you did one of these things. You prayed the sinner's prayer. You went through some kind of religious ritual. And even you you do Christian things now. But it's you, many of you, that are going to hear Jesus on that last day say, depart from me. For all your religion, I never knew you. Let me make four observations to you from this passage. It'll be relatively short, and then I want to go some more with this at the end. Here's, here's the first observation. There is a huge amount of falsely assured Christians. There's a huge amount, as Jesus tells it, of falsely assured Christians. Look at verse 13. The way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The way, on the other hand, is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He's not saying the many, oh, that's all the unbelieving world and the few. Those are the real believers. He's looking at the believing world and saying out of the believing world, those who go into the wrong way are actually many. And the ones who actually go down the narrow path, they're actually very, very few. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they go through and they recount all the stuff they did for him. And then he says, I will declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you. According to Jesus, this is going to happen to millions of people in churches just like ours all across the world. Observation number two. On the outside, false Christians look very similar to real Christians. Verse 23, those who are condemned on the judgment day had many of the outward signs of sincere Christianity. Look at verse 23, what they say to him. When these people call Jesus Lord, by the way, the Greek word that is used to, 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 to show that is the word kurios in Greek, which is the Greek word that Jewish people use for God himself. So in other words, these are not just like average religious people. These are people who recognize that Jesus is God. They recognize the deity of Christ. They recognize that there is a trinity. These are orthodox Christians. Here's something else. The fact that they repeat Lord twice in Semitic language, 
Whenever you repeat a name twice, it shows an emotional connection. It shows that, 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 that you are, are attached. You have affection for that person. So, for example, when David's son Absalom is killed, he throws up his hands and says, Oh, Absalom, Absalom. When Jesus refers to Mary or Martha by a term of endearment, he says, Oh, Mary, Mary, or Martha, Martha. When these people look at Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, what they are showing is that they had a love for Jesus. They had a respect for him. They at least felt like they had an emotional connection to him. They go on to say many mighty works, preaching, casting out demons. We did in your name. They were even supernatural works. Now, some of you are like, well, how could that be? I mean, you know, how could people who don't really know God, how could they be the ones who did incredible miracles? Well, that happens lots of places in the Bible. I mean, Caiaphas, the high priest who had Jesus crucified, made a prophecy right before he had him crucified that the Bible writer says came from the mouth of God. Or you got Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8 who does all kinds of miracles in the power of God, but he doesn't really know Christ. The, the, the most famous example is Balaam's donkey who preached a sermon. The Bible doesn't say that was a saved donkey. This is a donkey. God can use all kinds of things to get his purposes done. In other words... These were Christians in ministry. And these were people who came to prayer meeting. These were people who could talk about miracles they'd seen in their lives. These were people who went on mission trips by their outward behaviors, by their practices, by their language, by their rituals, <coughs> their radio stations, how they talked, what they wore. These false Christians appeared indistinguishable from true Christians. Or to use another one of Jesus' analogies that he uses here in verse 16, when Jesus talks about the two trees, both of them have fruits. It's not that one tree has no fruit, you know, it's all dead and drying and rotting, and the other has these huge, luscious watermelons or some kind of fruit that grows on trees hanging off of it. They grow on trees? I don't think so. Um, It says that one tree has good fruits and the other tree has bad fruit. And by the way, by bad fruit, he doesn't mean shriveled fruit right see how it says that the tree is diseased which means that the fruit is poisonous that's what makes it bad it's not that it looks bad on the outside all shriveled up and rotting it's something on the inside of that fruit that makes it bad or take the two houses the two houses look exactly the same it's only what's below the surface the foundation that makes them different do you get the point he's trying to make jesus is not talking about one guy who worships jesus and the other one who sits at home and smokes dope and plays kiss records backwards right he's talking about people who both come to church he's not talking about one guy who loves his neighbor and another one who beats his neighbor both of them have religious fruits both of them look like sheep both of them call jesus lord and it's only by looking on the inside that you see the Incredible difference. This brings to number three, which is probably the most shocking of all. For most, watch this, that they are false Christians will come as a complete surprise to them. They will say, wait wait a minute, Lord, didn't we? Don't you? we, We preached, we prophesied, we knew. We could explain we cast out demons. We did many mighty works in your name. Wait a minute, we, we scored perfect on our doctrinal exam. We felt like we loved Jesus. We were in, in ministry. We've we done Christian things. We've done all the rituals. Didn't we pray? 
Didn't we get baptized that we confirmed? Didn't the pastor declare us Christians? Didn't we serve in ministry? Didn't we look just like everybody else? It comes as a complete and total surprise. Number four, Jesus gives you very clearly in this passage the four marks of a falsely assured Christian. The four marks of a falsely assured Christian. As I showed you, the difference is not in the observance of ritual, religious ritual. It's not even in the fervency with which you do the religious ritual. It's not like the difference in real and false Christians is real Christians come to church three out of four weeks in the month and false Christians only come one or two weeks out of the four. It's not, you know, that, that real Christians know the Romans road and false Christians don't. Real, read, real Christians read their Bible every day, but false Christians don't. Real Christians pray half an hour, but false Christians, no, none of that has nothing to do with the fervency of religious ritual. Again, he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were varsity when it came to religion. These guys had memorized all five books of the Old Testament, uh, or the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, by heart, by, they could quote them all from start to finish. And these guys had down the ritual. So it's not that, it's something else. Here they are, here's, here's the first one. I'll give you another little four-point four list here. Number one, they have no first-hand knowledge of Jesus. They had no first-hand knowledge of Jesus. When Jesus says to them, I never knew you, he's not saying they didn't know about him. They couldn't describe him. They couldn't doctrinally tell you who he was. There was ritual and religion, but there was no relationship. They knew of Jesus. They knew his name. They knew how to describe him, but they did not know him. They thought they did. But there was never surrender to or love for Jesus, for Jesus' sake. They served God, but it was never out of love for him. It was because they wanted something from him. They thought that they'd done a ritual and, and, and then satisfied him. They thought if they'd go through the right rituals and obey by the right rules, then God would give them a, a better life or God was going to you know, give them a ticket out of hell. There was something they thought, if I do these things, keep these rules, go through these rituals, then God will give me the, the better life now or God will give me the, the entry into, into heaven. God to them was a certain code of conduct, a certain set of rituals that if you did them, could keep God off of your back. And Jesus says, for all your religion, I never, never knew you. Think of it like marriage. If I looked at my wife one day and said, lovely wife, what I really need from you are kids and a clean house. What do I need to do for you so that you will give me that? And so she says, well, you know, I feel like a good husband. I, I need you to be home every night by six. I don't want you going out at night and on the weekends. I want you to stay home. Help me take care of the kids. I don't want you playing golf. I need $300 a week for clothes. I need an occasional set of flowers and perfume. And I'm like, well, all right. And so I do all those things dutifully and religiously, and I fulfill all of her requirements. That's not marriage, right? Serving God because he is a means to a better life or an escape from hell is not Christianity either. It's just religion. And these people, for all of their religious fervency, did not have surrender to or love to Jesus for Jesus' sake. Here's the second indicator of false Christianity. He uses the word lawless. That's verse 23. Jesus is not fully in control of these people. Notice where he calls them, you workers of lawlessness. You're like, no, no, wait a minute. 
Didn't you say that these people were moral, law-obeying people? Didn't you say to us last week, if you were here on Easter, that they had 613 laws plus a bunch of other fine print they were supposed to keep? Yes. That's right. If anybody, you could call anybody a law keeper, it was these guys. But what happened is they had compartmentalized their faith. Watch this. They had made Jesus Lord of some parts of their lives, but not all. They may have given God nine-tenths of their life, but they were still controlling which nine-tenths they were giving to him, which is another way of maintaining full control. If I tell you, for example, that you can come in and run my business, except that I reserve the right to veto or overturn any decision that I feel like, then who is in actuality still running my business? Who's still in charge? Well, even if I've given you control of the fact that I retain veto power, the fact that I can overturn your decisions anytime I want means I'm ultimately still in charge. Or again, think of it like marriage. If I told my wife, there are 168 hours in the week, I'm going to let you be my wife for 166 of those. But for two hours a week, I get to be single. Do you call that a good, faithful husband? No. If Jesus is not Lord of all in your life, he is not Lord at all. If he is not Lord of your relationships, your career, your opinions about morality, or your money, he is not Lord at all. If you can't say that Jesus has final say in every area of your life, then you don't really know him as Lord. Some churches even try to make a distinction between accepting Christ as Savior and following him as Lord. You accept Christ as Savior. You pray the sinner's prayer. You check the box. You get baptized. And that's your free pass to heaven. That's your get out of hell free card. And then you don't have to take Jesus' commands that seriously. It would be nice one day if you would. You know, Jesus would certainly you know, appreciate it if you would, would come around to it at some point in your life, getting serious about him and, and following him. But, but if not, I mean, it's no big deal because you, you, know, you prayed the prayer and you accepted Christ. And so your sins will be, be tolerated along the way. No! No! Don't you see, listen, don't you see that we, and by we I mean, I mean me, we, 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 pastors in large churches, especially large churches, have put people on the broad road. We've tried to make it easy. We've told you that if you would just pray the prayer, then you'd be fine. And I will confess to you, by the way, why many of us did it. Because we like big churches. We like big churches. We like lots of activity, lots of people. And so what we did is we tried to make the broad road easy so that many people could find it. And so we said Christianity is just going through a few rituals. Come into our church. Don't forget to tithe. And when we filled up the church with people who are still on the broad road, the broad road, as Jesus describes it, is a mega church. You see that? That's by definition with a broad root. It's a mega church. It looks blessed. It has huge numbers, big offerings. Y'all, I have, I have mixed feelings about how we grow. I love that we are reaching people. I love that lots of people of all different types who are very far from God feel like they can come here and not be looked down on and that we can answer their questions I love the fact that our church is growing, that it has a reputation in our community that is attractive. I love it that there are many of you that are here this morning at all of our campuses who haven't been in church before. I love hearing stories like that, but I never want to grow big because we water down the message and soft play 
that Jesus, following Jesus, means a total surrender of our lives. The last thing I want to do is, is a bunch of people looking at me in this day and saying, but we were in your church and you told us that we were okay. Now let me back up here for a second because I want to explain something really important. And that is I'm not saying that it's only people who have it all together that are, that are Christians. That would rule out all of us, including me. My life is still, as a pastor, all screwed up. I'm still dysfunctional. I still struggle with sins that I've had for years. So I'm not saying that, okay? What I am saying is that you have to acknowledge that Jesus' claim over your life is total. I I am saying that you have to say that there is no portion of your life that is off limits to the kingship of Jesus. Sure, you are screwed up, and sure, you need lots of work. That is okay. But you recognize that his lordship is total, and you are looking to him to bring all areas of your life under his control. You have submitted all of your life to his rule. Now, I know some of you are like, oh, wait a minute. It sounds like you're saying that if we don't have obedient lives where we obey Jesus' commands, then we won't go to heaven. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. Okay? Just read it. I'm not saying it. He is saying it. You're like, whoa, 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 I thought we were saved by faith alone, not by good works. You are saved by faith alone. Salvation is trusting what Christ has done for you, not in something that you do to, before God or do for God that he somehow rewards you for. But faith that doesn't produce good works is not real faith. In other words, you are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Does that make sense? You're like, well, no, no. I was taught that being saved was like coming to Christ, like a little child. And you're making it sound so hard. Coming to Christ is coming like a little child. In the sense that as a child, you jump with abandon into your father's arms. That's what coming to Christ is like. And I think of when I go with my, 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 my daughters to the lake, and we swim out there in, in Lake Gaston, a really deep lake, you know, and, and, and I'll jump off the side of the boat, and I'll, you know, tell them to come to me, and they can never jump in there and swim and, and be safe. But without hesitation, they jump off the side of the boat because it's a complete and total trust and surrender into my abilities as their father. You see, here's the thing. I think, I think many of us want the love and comfort of Christ. We want the joy of, of church. We want the security that it brings to our families. We want the security of knowing that we'll go to heaven when we die. We even have a desire to be good people. What we don't want is the experience of laying down total control at Jesus' feet, giving up our self-will. Right? You ever been around somebody that is really generous but on their own terms? Like, they're, they're, they're nice people. They're actually really generous. They'll, they'll give a lot to you. But when you go to them, like you have a need, they're just not really there for you. They're going to be generous, but it's going to be on their terms, so they're not the kind of person you turn to in a moment. But see, what Jesus is saying is that there's a lot of people just like that with God. And they're moral, they, they're generous, they obey his commands, but on their terms. They still want to be able to decide what they're going to do with their money, what they're going to do with their jobs, who they will sleep with, they don't want to give up control because they feel helpless if they gave up control. 
Listen, you must abandon your self-will entirely to Jesus or you must abandon your hope of ever stepping foot in heaven. I know that's heavy, but you understand that is exactly what he is saying. I never knew you. Lawless. You were religious and moral, but you were still in control, not me. Here's number three. Though outwardly religious, they are inwardly ravenous. That's verse 15. Though outwardly religious, they're inwardly ravenous. Ravenous, by the way, is a very interesting Greek word. Because it means that you are empty and you're trying at all costs to fill yourself up. These are people, you see, Jesus says, that are doing religious things. But it is for the purpose of gaining something. For some, it's the praise of other people. Religion becomes a means of getting respect. If you're religious, you'll be accepted, you'll be thought well of in certain communities, maybe in our church, maybe in your family. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about a lot of religion that is done, in his words, for the praise of men. Obviously, that is totally worthless when you're trying to be religious and be good so you'd be accepted in community or so that other people will praise you. But see, you could also do good works, Jesus is saying, to try and gain something from God. Not because you want to know God, but because you think in doing these religious things, he will give you what it is that you want, which may be a better life now, maybe success, maybe it's simply dying and going to heaven. And so God becomes a means to an end. Yeah, illustration that I use to, to show you this, and I think I've used this here before, is, is um, when I think back to my college years, um, as part of um, the, the college I went to, before you graduated, you had to take a class on the fine arts, which meant either drama or classical music, of which I didn't like either. In fact, the idea, I, when I went to the class, I took it, you know, and I resented it the whole time because I'm like, drama, theater, you know, learning about a bunch of guys that, or guys that wear tights and prance around the stage, that's just not what I want to do. But because you had to get to graduate, I went in, I took the class, and here's, here's, here's sort of the irony. I did really well in the class. I studied. I scored all the tests. I could name the composers I could, uh, of, the, of the classical music. I could point out the different movements of on the fine arts thing, and I knew it all. Hey, not great, but the only reason I did that is not because I had any appreciation for fine arts. I hated it. It's because if you got a good grade there, then you could graduate with honors, and if you graduate with honors, you probably get a good job and make lots of money. That was before I knew I was becoming a pastor, by the way. All right? <laughs> so, so now catch this. Fine arts, theater, and classical music was simply a means to me, getting what I really wanted was a job where I could make lots of money. That make sense? Here's the irony. People change. Right? Including me. I don't know what did it to me, but somehow in the last few years, I've developed a real appreciation, nay, even love for the fine arts. <laughs> I have season tickets to the Durham Performing Arts Center Theater production, okay? So once a month, I go and watch guys in tights prance around the stage, and I really like it. <laughs> Right, all right? Classical music now. Ask anybody if my favorite kind of music. I listen to it five, six hours a day. It's always in the background. I love it. I can identify the different you know, composers. I, I love that thing. And here's, here's the real irony. Now, I spend an extraordinary amount of money being able to enjoy the fine arts. You catch this? Before I used the fine arts, theater and Music as a way of trying to get a job to get money, but now I use that very money to turn around and enjoy the arts. 
what Jesus is saying is that many people are doing that with God. They have no love, no desire for God whatsoever. God is simply a means to an end. And so they're using God to get to what they really want, which is a better life or security in heaven and to not go to hell. And God says, you look religious, but inside you are ravenous. You don't want to know me at all, right? Your religion is a means to an end. In fact, the Greek word can even mean extortion. In other words, you do something to God, and now you feel like you've got him in a place where he has to give you something. You're like, God, I did the rituals. Okay, I did this right here. I said my rosaries. I went forward. I prayed this prayer. I wrote my name down here. I come to church. You have to bless me now. You have to take me to heaven. They don't care about, desire, or love God. They don't seek him. These people, they're not trying to go closer to him. They're obeying the rules that they think they have to obey to make him a good person, for God to approve of them, and so they can get from God what they really need. And Jesus said, you are outwardly religious, but you are inwardly ravenous. Because you're serving God to get something from him. Here's the fourth one. Because they have no foundation. This is verse 27. Their commitment to Christ falters in the storms of life. You see, life goes wrong. Storms come, as Jesus says. The winds blow and the rain falls. And they beat against the house. And these people think, wait a minute. If God's not going to take better care of me, if God's not going to keep the storms from coming into my life, then why would I serve him? It's like in religion, it's like you have a contract with God. God, I'm going to do certain things. God, and this is what you're going to do in return. You're going to make my life easier. You're going to bless me all the time. And so when you're in a storm, you get mad at God for not keeping up his end of the bargain. And you assume, well, well, God, what good is it that I'm with you? And so you leave him. What's the advantage of being religious if it's not going to get me all this stuff that I want? And what Jesus is saying is that a sign that you have no foundation is that in the midst of the storm, your commitment to Christ goes up and down. People who really know God, you see, in the middle of a storm say, in the midst of this storm, if I lose everything, I still have you. And I'd rather have you than anything, and that is a foundation that allows me to weather any storm. You see, a real Christian has a foundation that carries him through any storm, and that is his or her grasp, his or her understanding of and belief in the gospel. You see, when the storm comes, you don't worry that that the storm is a sign of God's anger, right? Because the gospel teaches you that God has taken away all your sin at the cross, That you are now his child and he is your father. And you know that God feels about you the way that a father would feel about his own children. A good father. I know that God feels about me the same way I feel about my daughters, if not 10,000 times more. Because I'm still a sinful human being and cannot love my daughters the way that God loves me or God loves them. But I know in the midst of a storm that it's not a sign of God's anger because I know that he is my father. I know that I am his child, and I know that his favor is upon me, and I have no doubts about that. You know, I, I've shared this before, but I think of, of uh, just how much I've realized that I look at my own daughters differently than I look at anybody else in the entire world. You know, I always, I, before I had kids, I loved people, and I was good friends, but um, it happened again last night, all right? Um, all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, you know, 2.30 in the morning, Veronica and I wakes up, and sitting right beside of our bed are two little sets of eyes at about that height right there. Because one of them's six and one of them's three. 
They're looking, right? They don't say a word about what's happened, right? Because they've been scared. Something went scared. And they just come, they stand right beside one of our, our bedside. No words. I didn't, you know, open my eyes and look at them. There's the two sets of eyes. And I do for them something I would never, ever do for anybody else. Without saying a word, I just open up the covers and they climb on in. And so, and I thought, you know, sometimes I think I'm like, imagine if I, somebody else did that to me, right? <laughs> I mean, it was a little sketchy, but just imagine if, if one of my guy friends in the middle of the night gets scared, comes over to my house and stands next to my bed, and I wake up and I'm looking at it, I'm not going to be like, you know, come on in, I'll take care of you. I, I look at my daughters fundamentally different, and hopefully they never have to question or doubt whether or not my love is always for them, and, and a person that really knows God when they go through the midst of the storm because of the gospel says, no, no, he's not angry because... All of his anger has been poured out on the cross, and now all he does is look at me with approval and love, and so I don't doubt it. It's my foundation. It's my security. Furthermore, when the storms are threatening to sweep away everything else, you feel like you have your one great passion, possession, that is better to you than anything else that life could give, and it's more secure than anything death could take away. So when the storm comes into your life, you don't crumble. One of the biggest signs that you're not really a Christian is that your commitment to Christ goes up and down depending on the circumstances. And that's because your religious foundation is not built upon the knowledge of God that you get in the gospel. So there's your four things. He's given them to you. No firsthand knowledge of Jesus. You're lawless, and that is Jesus is not fully in control. You're outwardly religious, but you're inwardly ravenous. You're serving Jesus not to know him. Not because you're seeking him, not because you're trying to go closer to him, but you're doing it to get something from him. In verse 4, I mean, uh, verse 27, you have no foundation, and so your commitment to Christ falters in the storms of life. If these things are true of you, then you have a false commitment to Christ. I don't care how religiously active you are. You may be outwardly religious. You may have prayed the sinner's prayer 10,000 times. Billy Graham might have signed your Bible. You might have been baptized 10 different times in every possible mode in every church. But you don't know Jesus. You are not his child. And one day he will tell you, depart from me. Because I am never knew you. I am not trying to frighten or confuse you. I am trying to warn you, to awaken you, as Jesus did. You see, we naturally gravitate toward that which is easy and popular. We naturally gravitate toward the wide road. We naturally gravitate toward the wide road that says all salvation requires is a one-time decision for Jesus. And then you don't have to take Christ's commands that seriously. I mean, it'd be good if you did one day, but you know, you got your pass into heaven. Your sinful life will be tolerated. You know, just do your best and, and, and kind of, you know, check in every once in a while. Make sure you tie from time to time. And, and uh, you know, as long as you got this, as long as you pray this and check this box, you're going to be okay. I mean, your sins will be tolerated along the way. I know that's popular in our Christian culture, but it is wrong. We have millions of people in churches and even a number in this church who are going to hear the most terrifying, unexpected verdict on Judgment Day when Jesus says, depart 
from me, religious man. Depart from me, seminary student. Depart from me, Summit Church member. Depart from me, missionary. Depart from me, Christian, because I never knew you. Do not look around. Right now, do not look around and think, well, I'd say I'm at least in the upper 20% here in this church. I think I'm okay. That is the wide road that leads to hell. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to hear those terrible words from the mouth of Jesus, I never knew you? It is personal. He doesn't lump everybody together and say, all of y'all, y'all are all the unsaved. According to this passage, he looks right into your eyes. And for the first time, there is total honesty between you and him. And he shakes his head and said, I never knew you. I am afraid for many, for many of you. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to give you just a quick fix this morning. Oh, now, pray this little prayer again. Here's another little ritual that will make you feel better when you leave here. Check the box one more time. That is still the broad road that leads to destruction. Salvation is, as Jesus said, coming to him like a child. Jesus, you are what I need. Jesus, I want to be with you. Jesus, with abandon, I give up control to you. You see, I will tell you this without a slight hesitation. And if you'll understand it without a drop of pride, Jesus could never say to me, I never knew you. Because I would say, never knew me. Jesus, at 16 years old, I began a process where I trusted entirely in your grace to get me to heaven. You became my strength and my comfort for every storm that I went through. You became the one who told me where to go. You were the one who took control of my life. You were the one thing that I held on to in the future. I know you. It's not because I've lived perfectly. It's not because I've lived better than any of you. It's because I have found Jesus as Savior, King, and God. I found him as that which I depend on and trust in for my righteousness, my security, my salvation. If you will accept his invitation to come to him, to let him be your Savior and to put your hope in him, to let him be your King and surrender to him, to let him be your God, and that is to delight and seek him, then you will never hear him say to you, depart from me. Because you will know him. Today, listen, this morning, I don't want to have you stand. I'm not having you raise your hand. I want you to think about whether or not you really know Jesus. Whether or not you serve him with all your heart. Whether or not you've let him be Lord of every area of your life. Every area. I want you to think about whether or not you love him. Whether or not you're wanting to know him more. If not, in these moments, listen, you can surrender and you can believe. It's not complex. It's not complex. It's simply, Jesus, you're king of my life. Jesus, you're savior. I trust in. I yield to. I give myself to you. What I'm going to ask us is at all of our campuses right now, I'm going to ask you that you, you just bow your heads for a few minutes.
In a moment, I'm going to put on the screen sort of the four points that, that we went through on this. And I just want you to pray. I want you to pray. I want you to think about these things. I want you to ask yourself whether or not you know Jesus. And if not, then I invite you in these moments to surrender and believe. Maybe you are sure that you know Jesus. Maybe it's somebody else that comes to mind that you know plays a religious game but doesn't know Christ. And maybe you want to pray for them. I'm going to have at all of our different campuses down at the front of the room that they're meeting in. They're going to have prayer counselors to my right or to my left. Some of you may need to pray with somebody. Some of you, it may be time to stop the game. And yeah, you can take care of it right there in your seat, but you may want to come up and just pray with somebody. That's what we're here for. I'm going to invite you for the next three or four minutes. Right? Use these things that are here on the screen and just spend some time praying and just ask yourself these questions and spend a few moments before God.